Well, one of the most amazing things, church, about being a Christian, being saved and forgiven and given a new heart in Christ, is that you personally really start to love Jesus. To love Jesus. And I know that sounds so simple, but let's not overlook that this is quite an amazing thing. Something really happens in our hearts when we become Christians, where not only are we saved and forgiven and we just know that, but we actually start to love Jesus, to love God, to trust and cherish and love someone that we've never seen, but who we know to be real and true and the one who made us and the one who saved us. But not only is the fact that we start to love Jesus amazing, but perhaps even more startling to our natural hearts is the fact that we really start to want him to be made much of. That we really start to want Jesus to be exalted in our lives and not just us. And this is strange, and even for us who are Christians, it can continue to feel a little strange because everything in us naturally right, with our sin, wants ourselves to be made much of. We may love certain people, but to really want someone else to be exalted, someone else to be made much of, is so foreign to us. But that's what starts to happen in a Christian's heart. And for those who don't know Christ, this may all just sound weirdly religious or just like some psychological delirium or something. But we know that this is the heartbeat of the Christian. And those of us who are Christians, we know it. We do. Not perfectly, but we do truly love Jesus and we want him to be made much of. And that brings us to our text here in Philippians 1. So we start with all of that because as you might have seen in the scripture reading, this is the Apostle Paul's heartbeat in our text. He wants Christ to be made much of, Christ to be proclaimed, Christ to be exalted. And you can see that this is the main idea in our text by looking at the first verse and the last verse of our passage this morning. So look first with me just at verse 12 just to see this. The passage starts with, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So there you see it. The topic of our passage coming up is that something has happened, and it's a good thing because it's really served to advance the gospel, the message of Jesus. But then it's even clearer that this is Paul's heartbeat at the last verse of our section, verse 18, where Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And so that is the overarching theme of our passage. Paul is clear that he wants the Philippians to know, God wants us to know this morning, that compared to everything else going on, what's going on in our passage is working for good. Why? Because Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, Paul rejoices and we should as well. But now with that said, let's dig into our text to see the details of what's really going on here and how it applies to us. And we'll do this by breaking up our text into two major sections because the text naturally does that itself. And you can see that in the two paragraphs here, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 15 through 18. And so simply said, those will be our two sections this morning. And as we go at those, we're going to go at them with two overarching ideas. 
First, we're going to see what God has been doing here to advance the gospel of Christ. What God has been doing. That's going to be the first paragraph, verses 12 through 14. And then second, we're going to see Paul Paul talk about what people have been doing to advance the gospel of Christ. And that will be verses 15 through 18. So very simply, what God has been doing to advance the gospel and what people have been doing to advance the gospel. And as always, we're going to see how it applied back then to the Philippians, but then also how it applies to us. So that said, let's now begin in verses 12 through 14. This is what God has been doing to advance the gospel. So we'll begin just again with verse 12 because Paul explains something pretty profound here. And just as a side note, since we're going through the letter of Philippians verse by verse as a church here at ECC, just want you to know that what we're about to begin here is the body of the letter. So we just finished the intro, verses 1 through 11, the last couple weeks, and now we begin the body of the letter, which is the majority of the letter. And what we're going to see Paul do to start is he's going to update them with what's going on with him, like he often does in his letters. So that said, look down to your Bibles. This is verse 12. We're beginning the body of the letter. Paul writes this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So you can see what's going on with Paul. He's in prison. We know that. If you remember, he mentioned his imprisonment in verse 7. But what does he want them to know? Well, you see it there, that this imprisonment, this difficulty and trial, this, this thing that seems to be not good, has, quote, really served to advance the gospel. In other words, this imprisonment clearly looks like a negative, right? The Apostle Paul, probably the greatest evangelist and gospel spreader in the early church, has been imprisoned, where he can't travel around, where he can't go from city to city sharing the news of Jesus, and yet, Paul himself says that this has actually been a positive. And not just a positive for him individually, but a positive for the gospel. So that's just the first verse in our paragraph, and it's quite an amazing statement, but we'll come back to it in a second. But before we come back, let's see why Paul says it's been a positive. And he gives two reasons why, one in verse 13 and one in verse 14. So these are the two reasons why he believes that him being thrown in prison has actually been a positive for the gospel. So let's read those now. We'll start again in verse 12, just because it's the middle of a sentence. 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So two things have happened. You probably saw them. Verse 13, Paul says, It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment's for Christ. Which is fascinating. Because remember, Paul's in prison in Rome. And what he's saying here is that because of his imprisonment, The whole imperial guard has come to know that he's in prison for Christ. And literally you can see in the footnote there of verse 13, if you're reading the ESV, that that word imperial guard can really be translated praetorium, the whole praetorium, which is a a Roman word. And there's there's a little debate on where exactly that was in Rome. 
But everyone agrees that this was a place where there was a lot of soldiers. Probably thousands of soldiers, and one of their tasks was to watch over those who were in prison there. So think about what Paul is saying. He's saying that his imprisonment has actually been a positive. Why? Because the whole praetorium, probably thousands of soldiers, has now come to know that his imprisonment is for Christ. And not only that, he says the whole praetorium and all the rest. So meaning this is probably people who lived around the praetorium. All of them, because of Paul's imprisonment, have now come to hear about Jesus. Now, to be clear, Paul doesn't say that they've all become Christians. I'm sure many of them did. But imagine the situation. So so Paul was, again, becoming somewhat famous. We know this from the book of Acts. He was somewhat of a famous prisoner. So now Paul's in prison in Rome, and all these guards who have heard of him, maybe a lot of them, are able to see, because they're watching him, who Paul really is and what he's really about. And they're seeing that this man is in prison, not because of any big crime he committed, like all some of the others in prison. Instead, he's in prison because he preaches and proclaims that this Messiah has come and died and rose from the dead. And in that way, we can see how they've come to hear about Jesus. And how? Because of Paul's imprisonment. So that's the first way the imprisonment has been a positive. The second way is in verse 14. We'll read that again. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So in verse 13, you saw all these unbelievers coming to know or hear about Jesus because of Paul's imprisonment. And now in verse 14, you see that fellow believers are becoming more confident because of Paul's imprisonment. You can see it. They became, quote, more confident and, quote, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so if you're tracking because of Paul's imprisonment, you not only had all these unbelievers coming to hear about Jesus, but now you also have all these believers becoming much more bold and confident to speak the word without fear. And so now you can feel the tenor of this paragraph here, Paul's imprisonment, surprisingly, has been a real positive for the gospel. And it's the opposite of what you might expect. But now that finally brings us, before we apply it, to consider the main takeaway, I think, of this paragraph. Because if you remember, this first paragraph here, we're talking about what God was doing to spread the gospel. That's how we set it up. And that's because we see this negative turned into two different positives, right? We see that. But Paul also wants the Philippians and us to see how it was God who was the one doing this. And I say this because there's two big hints in those verses we just read that point us to the fact that this isn't just random. This is God's doing behind the scenes. And I want you to see them for yourself. First, let's return briefly to that first verse in verse 12. I think this is becoming an encouraging verse for us. So look there with me because it's important. So a negative has turned into a positive. We're seeing that. But Paul wants us to know what's really going on. Notice Paul's language. He says his imprisonment has, quote, really served to advance the gospel. And those two words are really important. Really served. Served is an active verb, which is kind of interesting. Meaning the imprisonment, according to Paul, is doing something. 
And what's it doing? This imprisonment is serving. It's advancing the gospel. So that's the word serve. But now notice, it's not just that the imprisonment is serving the gospel. But Paul says that this is really what's going on. Meaning, in reality, his imprisonment looks like a negative. But in reality, his imprisonment is being used or, or guided in a different way. It's really advancing the gospel. Or better yet, that Greek word is even best translated. It's a little awkward, but above is really the word, or more than. That's what the word literally means. It's much more and above advancing the gospel. And so the picture really is this, that we have this negative-looking imprisonment. And on our level, it doesn't look so good. But in reality, above our negative-looking situation, something else is going on. It's really being used to serve a positive thing. So that's the hint in verse 12. Something's going on that's really guiding this a different way. Which brings us to the other hint in verse 14. And the question then is, well, Paul, how is this happening? And you probably know the answer. God is for a positive. And we see this made explicit in verse 14. So remember, there, some fellow Christians are becoming confident because of Paul's imprisonment. Which is interesting, because think of this. Ask yourself, why would people become confident because Paul's been thrown in prison? You would think people would become more timid because they wouldn't want to be thrown in prison themselves. So why are they becoming more confident? Let's see for yourself. Paul makes it clear in verse 14. He says that they've become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. So there it is. So track with me it, with what's going on here. So we have this imprisonment of Paul. And it's leading to people becoming more confident. Why? Because they're looking at this imprisonment and what God is doing with the imprisonment and it's making them more confident in that God. That's why their confident, it, confidence isn't in themselves. It's, quote, in the Lord. And so that's what makes this section, above all, what God has been doing to advance the gospel. The Lord Jesus, our God himself, has taken this imprisonment that at first looks so bad, and he has planned it to really serve the advancement of the gospel. He's taken this big negative and made it into a much bigger positive. Which finally leads us to apply this first paragraph. So we've seen that God's taking this negative and using it for a positive. And now we're going to apply this to ourselves in two ways. One broad application and then one specific application. First, the broad application for us. And the way to apply this broadly is to really embrace the truth that we just saw. Which is a, one of the most beautiful truths in the whole entire Bible. And that's that God often takes seemingly negative situations and uses them for good. He does. Because all of us have been in situations where we feel like it can't be good. We think that there's no way that the thing that's happening to us or somebody else can be a positive. 
And we can imagine that maybe that's what Paul felt when he was originally thrown in prison. And I'm sure that's what many of the early Christians probably felt when Paul was imprisoned. And this can't be good. For him, for the cause of the gospel, that's what they probably thought. And we have things like that all the time. Things where it seems to us at first that this can't be good, that maybe God has lost control. But that's why we love promises, right? Like Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, God works all things for good. And what Romans 8, 28 says in a promise, Philippians 1, 12 through 14 here that we just covered gives us an example. And that's why I hope after even this morning that this passage here, which maybe you didn't know much about, even just verse 12, becomes a similarly encouraging text for us, just like Romans 8, 28. Because when we're in those times where we don't understand why God is allowing this to happen, where we can't see how this could be a positive, we should quote Romans 8.28. And I pray you do, that for those who love God, God is working this for good. But now we can also use what Paul said here in verse 12. We can say that what is going on here is really serving a better purpose. And so I encourage each one of us to take those, just those two words to heart, really serve, that God really has plans that are above, that really are serving a better purpose, even when we can't see them. That he can take those seemingly negative situations to serve something much better. So that's the broad application, because that's what we see happening here. But then the specific application of these verses is how God often does this with the spreading of the message of Jesus. Because that's specifically what's being talked about here, right? That's what Paul's talking about, how God took a seeming negative for the gospel, something that looked like it would hurt the cause of Christ, and he turned it into a positive for the furtherance of the gospel. And we need to think specifically like this as well for ourselves, but especially concerning our world. And concerning our world, I do think many of us Christians need to hear this, especially because we can get so concerned and caught up about what's going on in our world, in our country, in the direction we see it going. And while some of the concern may be understandable, I do think that we need to be careful not to get so caught up in the talk, in the news, in the air of current events that we forget or diminish the biblical air and truth of God's sovereignty and control and everything. So often we can have opinions about what we think would be best for our world or our country for the cause of Christ. But it's texts like this here in Philippians 1 that should remind us that we actually don't always know what's best. We don't. And not only that, but we worship and trust in a God who is more committed to the spread of Christ than any of us in this room. And he often works in ways that we wouldn't expect. Because once again, imagine the Christians hearing this news about Paul's imprisonment 2,000 years ago. You could have imagined that they thought it was just going downhill from here, like so many Christians sometimes do today. Or perhaps they could have gotten really upset with the Roman government for persecuting and imprisoning Paul. And from that upsetness, all these other emotions could have arisen, like so often it does for a lot of Christians these days. But then again, we need to be reminded of what Paul says in here in Philippians 1. 
Because what that Christian 2,000 years ago, hearing the, Paul, the news of Paul's imprisonment, wouldn't have known is that God was actually orchestrating all of that for the very advancement of the gospel. And, and to be honest, we, we don't know how God could be doing that same exact thing in millions of ways today. And so the specific application is here is to make sure that we don't get so caught up in our own plans and purposes and opinions to the point that we get frustrated and honestly angry and unloving when things don't go as we planned. Instead, we're to trust in our God, who is the God of Philippians 1, that he always works, the Bible's clear, not only for the good of his people, but he's always working for the good of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention or care about things going on, but we have to be careful to be mainly a people of peace and love and a people who trust in God because although certain things might not go as we would like or as we would plan for the cause of Christ, God is more committed to spreading the gospel than we are. So above all, in peace and kindness and in trust, we are to believe him and trust that he knows what he's doing. So that was our first paragraph. That was our first paragraph. And there we saw what God was doing for the advancement of the gospel. But that now leads to our second paragraph. And here we're going to be seeing what people were doing for the advancement of the gospel. And to be clear, by setting it up this way, we're not saying that God now isn't in control here in this second paragraph. He still is. Instead, though, I set it up this way because Paul here, as you're going to see, is now going to focus on how specific people uh, spread the gospel in different ways. So with that said, so now look down in our Bibles and we're going to start with just verses 15 through 17. Just through verse 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So we'll stop there for now. So you can see, Paul put forward two opposite ways that people are sharing the gospel. First, there are those who are sharing the gospel from, quote, goodwill. And he says that they were doing this out of love for the Apostle Paul. But this then is contrasted with those who are sharing the gospel from, quote, envy and rivalry in verse 15. Meaning these people were envious of Paul and they wanted to get out and combat Paul. And then in verse 17, they're said to share the gospel from selfish ambition with their goal even to, quote, inflict Paul. And so these were people who were out for their own fame and praise. They didn't like Paul. And so it seems, as strange as this may sound, that they were going out and they were preaching Jesus the message of Jesus, so that they could take credit for it instead of Paul. And they wanted Paul to see that they're doing it, that they could do it, while he couldn't do it because he was imprisoned. So that's verses 15 through 17. Which leads us now to our last verse, because here Paul is going to give his response to all that going on. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that... I rejoice. So what's Paul's response? An amazing, what then? Or you could even translate it like, who cares? What does it matter? Christ is proclaimed. 
And in that, I rejoice. So Paul looks at these two different groups of people. Those who share the gospel to love and goodwill. Those who share the gospel to envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. And he says, hey, Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And this shows us that Paul didn't ultimately care about his own reputation or his own ability to preach Christ since that was while he was in prison. Instead, he ultimately cared about Jesus being proclaimed about Jesus being made much of. And if that happened, then he rejoiced. And right away, we should know how beautiful a response that is, and that's a takeaway here for us this morning as well. We need to be a people who care less about our own reputation. Instead, we care ultimately about Jesus' reputation. And, And not only that, but we should be okay with God using us individually, and even as this church, as God sees fit. Even if that means that we take a little bit of a back seat. Because ultimately, it's not about us being proclaimed. It's about Jesus being proclaimed. That brings us to something else in this passage here. And I think it's important for us to get. And it's what we'll focus on for the majority of the rest of our time here this morning. And I focus on it because honestly, I do think that this verse here in Philippians 1.18 is one of the most misunderstood and often misapplied verses in Paul's letters. And since we're going verse by verse through the book of Philippians, it'd be great if we really understood what Paul's getting at here and didn't misapply it in a hurtful way. And to understand what I'm talking about, and here in Philippians 1, turn with me to Galatians 1. I really encourage you to turn with me here. It's going to be, Galatians is only two books to the left, but it should only be about six to ten pages in your Bible. So turn with me to Galatians 1. So Galatians 1. And, and we go here because what you're going to see here is almost an issue with Philippians 1. And we're just going to read quickly verses 6 through 9 of Galatians 1. And I bring this up because what you're going to see here is at first glance, it seems to be contradictory to what we saw in Philippians 1. So here's what I mean. And remember, both of these are written by the Apostle Paul. So this is Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. The Bible says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So you can see what's going on here in Galatians 1. Apparently, some people in the region of Galatia were using the name of Christ And using the terminology of the good news, the gospel, but Paul says it's a different, distorted gospel. And so now ask yourself, what's Paul's response here to what's going on? How does he feel that they're using the name of Jesus and they're spreading the gospel, but it's a different gospel? Well, he's really firm. In fact, this is one of the firmest places in all of his writings. He says their gospel is distorted and so it's dangerous, it's deadly, And honestly, it's worthy of being cursed. And that word accursed there just means separated from God, forever thrown into hell. And he even says that if he or even an angel from heaven should come and preach a gospel different than the real gospel, that that should happen to them. 
So that's Galatians 1. So people are taking the name of Christ, they're spreading the gospel, but the inspired Paul says it's deadly serious because they're not spreading the real gospel, the real Jesus, and it's a big, big deal. So that's a now turn back with me in your Bibles to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, where we just were. So now let's read verses 15 through 18 one more time. And as we do, ask yourself, what's different here from Galatians 1? Because at the end of our passage here, he's rejoicing in what's going on. So let's read 15 through 18 again. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So you can see the difference. Here, Paul seems to say that he's totally fine with whatever as long as Christ is proclaimed, as long as the gospel is being said. And so the question is, how do we reconcile Galatians 1 where the Bible is so serious about the deadliness of people using the name of Jesus and the word gospel if it's the wrong gospel? How do we reconcile Galatians 1 with Philippians 1? Where the Bible seems to say that as long as Christ is being proclaimed, we should rejoice. And it's honestly in answering that that people, even with good intentions, get it incorrect. And it's hurtful, I think, to the spread of the gospel. So what's the answer? Well, maybe you're kind of seeing it yourself. Notice what's actually going on in Philippians 1 in comparison to Galatians 1. Because this is important. So in Philippians 1, Paul's in prison. And other people are spreading the gospel and he says that they're doing it from two totally different motives or different reasons. One group's doing it out of love, the other group's doing it really selfishly. But in the end, notice the gospel, the true gospel is still going forth. And so Paul rejoices. Why? Because again, he doesn't care about his own reputation as, 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 well, as much as the true gospel is going forth, even if his own reputation is hurt and people are using bad motives, it doesn't matter. At least Jesus is going forth. So we can sum up Philippians 1 here saying that as long as the real message is going forth, the motive behind it matters less. As long as the real message is going forth. But now, compare that to what we saw in Galatians 1. You don't need to go back there, but if you remember, there it wasn't the motive that Paul focused on. Instead, what was wrong and what was such a big deal? The message of the gospel of Jesus was really off. And that, according to our Bibles, is really a big deal. That didn't cause Paul to rejoice. That caused him to say that it was such a big deal that heaven and hell were in the balance. And, and here's, here's why I say this. So, so often people use this text here in Philippians 1.18 about as long as Christ is being proclaimed, I rejoice with good intentions, but honestly a little bit incorrectly. And it's not just wrong, but it can be hurtful to the real message of the gospel of Christ. And at first, it seems like a loving way because it seems loving to apply this sort of rejoicing emotion to false teachers as long as they're using the name of Jesus. But in reality, that's not what Philippians 1 is talking about. 
Instead, Philippians 1 is saying that motives matter less as long as the true message is going forth. But where the true gospel is distorted or where the name of Jesus is being used but wrongly, Galatians 1 is actually what applies. And so just to make this really practical, let's just name four major categories from just where we live these days that Galatians 1 applies to, but Philippians 1 doesn't. Categories of teachings that are popular these days that even use the name of Jesus and the word gospel, but unfortunately are really wrong, and so we should take them lovingly seriously. First would be cults. Cults, the major two these days, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, where they use the name of Jesus. And they talk about having the gospel, but it's not the real gospel. Second would be the category of those who just get the gospel really wrong, who say that we're saved by salvation, saved by faith and works. And that would be a lot of those in the Roman Catholic Church, unfortunately, and a lot of just really legalistic churches. They use the name of Jesus and the word gospel, but they get it really wrong. Third would be a lot of mainline churches who deny things like the miracles of Jesus and the physical resurrection and his death in this place for his people. They might use the name of Jesus, call themselves a church, but get the gospel wrong. And then fourth, and finally, we can look at the prosperity gospel teachers. Like so many on TV who think the gospel is you trust in Jesus to get rich or to get healed. And they're using Jesus like a genie and they're blaspheming Jesus and they're using the gospel and Jesus really wrong. All four of those categories, cults, those who add works, those who deny miracles like the resurrection, those who use Jesus for affluence, all of them use the name of Jesus. All of them say they're spreading the gospel and the good news, and yet we shouldn't be rejoicing just because they use the name of Jesus. And why? Because they get the message scarily wrong. And I say that out of love, because to get the gospel wrong is so deadly, according to the Bible in Galatians 1. Now, to be clear, God certainly often uses such wrong teaching. He often, by his grace, really can use wrong teachings and false teachers to get people, amazingly, to read the Bible and to hear the real gospel. For example, I was having lunch with Steve this week. He has a great story where uh, he shares when he was younger, God used a, a cult, the Unification Church, the Moonies as they were called, to get Steve a New Testament. That's what got Steve reading the Bible for the first time and where he heard of the real gospel was a cult ended up giving him a Bible. It's an amazing story. You should ask him. And so God absolutely can use wrong movements and teachers. But let's not apply Philippians 1 to them and say we rejoice just because they're using the name of Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. And in fact, maybe the best example of this is Jesus, who didn't rejoice at the false teaching of the Pharisees just because they were using the Bible and using the name of God. Instead, as you know, he was much more like Galatians 1 toward them. And the same is true for us in love. In love, really. We should look at these four categories. Cults, those who say we need works. Those who deny miracles. Those who use Jesus for affluence and prosperity. And we should prayerfully and sadly and lovingly feel more like Galatians 1. They've abandoned the gospel. And it is a big, big deal. They've distorted the gospel. And Paul says it's, it's deadly. 
And why? Because it's blasphemous. Misusing and dishonoring the name of Jesus. And our God does not take that lightly. And in love, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't either. But then, you may ask, okay, so then where does Philippians 1.18 apply? Where does it apply that I can just rejoice as long as Christ's name is being used? Well, here's where we can use it rightly. So Philippians 1 is about wrong motives, but the right message. So we can apply that wherever the real gospel does go forth, even if the people saying it are really sinful in their intentions or even non-Christians themselves. Be it someone who fell away from the faith or something like a news article that is really mocking Christianity but in the end is still explaining Christianity. Or be it somebody who's making fun of you for believing that Jesus rose from the dead but in doing so, they're spreading the message that Jesus rose from the dead. And those sort of situations, although we might be put down and although a non-Christian person might be involved, Christ is being really proclaimed, and so we should rejoice. So that's our text from Philippians 1, 12 through 18. As we said at the outset, the overarching idea is Christ being proclaimed, and on this we saw Paul talk about what God was doing and then what people were doing for the advancement of the gospel. But now as we come to a close, I just want to make one final application for all of us. Because there's a lot here about Christ and his gospel and the gospel advancing, about God using our negatives for the positive, and about how God can use situations and people to advance the gospel. But to bring us to a close, I want to end with us really bringing this home, individually, to yourself, and to our church. And this is bringing us back to where we started. And we can now ask ourselves as we go through our, as we finished our passage, passage if we're Christians, And it is our heart's desire for Christ to be proclaimed as it was Paul's desire in this text. As it's clearly God's desire in this text. Then what are we really doing to further the advancement of the gospel of Christ? What are you doing? Because we can read verses like this, especially verse 18. Christ is proclaimed and that I rejoice. And we can come to church and smile and nod and amen and that's great. But are we doing things that actually align with that desire? And moreover, are you praying accordingly? I hope we are. I hope we are sharing the gospel with our friends, our family, our co-workers. And I hope that most of us in this church are praying consistently for the gospel to go forth from this church and reach the city of Stamford. But if we're honest with ourselves and we look into our hearts and we see that that's not going on, If we're honest and we admit that in our hearts we really don't care that much about the gospel going forth, then it'd be a shame to leave such a passage about Paul's and God's desire for the advance of the gospel and not realize that it's something that we personally need to work on. And so I encourage you as we close to apply this. In what ways can you fan into flame your God-given desire for Christ to be proclaimed? Is it by sharing the gospel with somebody that you kind of know you can share the gospel with, but you just haven't yet? Is it by praying, making sure you pray every single day for this church and for us to reach the city of Stanford? Is it by finally writing and sending that letter to that friend or family member about your faith? Whatever it is, let's, let's apply it. 
Because if we are Christians, like we said at the beginning, it really is our heart's desire for Jesus to be proclaimed. And although sin and laziness and timidity might get in the way, we really want this. So let's do it. Let's pray and act accordingly for the furtherance of the gospel. All because we are happiest and God is most glorified when we look at the world and everything going on and we look at our own lives and everything that we're doing. And we, with trust in God, can say, Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice.